We're coming back to the book of Matthew. Would you, if you would open the Bible with me and, uh, and follow along as I read and keep it open so that you can look up and look down, look up and look down, uh, because I want you to see just uh, the different features of this passage, this text. At Summit Bible Church, uh, we believe in expositional preaching, and so we do that systematically. We, we move through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, uh, passage by passage, And so that's why we're in the book of Matthew. Sometimes, though, there will be a topical message, like last week, a message on evangelism. But the message is still expositional. What expositional preaching is, is it's drawing out of the text what the principle of the passage is, and then explaining that to the people. And so uh, it's really important for you as a listener to have your Bible open, to see the principles drawn out of the text. And so... If you're there, Matthew chapter 10, we're just going to go four and a half verses this morning. Matthew 10, 1 says this, And he called him to him his twelve disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And these twelve Jesus sent out. Huddle up. I remember those words like it was yesterday. I played high school football, and a big part of football is the huddle. And the huddles are important. That's where the coach or the team leader give the instructions. They lay out the play. What are we going to run? What are we going to do? But an important, another part of the huddle that's very important is the motivational part. There's the hoorah in there, right? The excitement, the buildup, the The uh, encouragement to go out and execute the play, not just like going through the motions, but with some oomph, with some enthusiasm. Here we see a similar gathering with Jesus and his 12 disciples. It's a huddle, if you will. And he's going to lay out in this whole chapter, chapter 10, he's going to lay out clear instructions for them. What they need to do as they go out into a hostile world. But he's not just going to give them instructions, he's going to give them some motivation, some, some comfort, some encouragement as they go, because they're going to need it. They're going out as sheep amongst, amongst wolves. They're going to be attacked. They will be persecuted. And so to continue to be faithful in that endeavor, they need some encouragement. They need some comfort. So we have an ear into this huddle. We're able to listen to what Jesus says, and maybe the question we should ask is, is this for us? Here he gathers 12 disciples whom he would send out as apostles. He gives them clear instruction. Is that instruction for us today? Or is it just for the apostles back then? You'll see that he gives them power to heal diseases, 
power to cast out demons. Do we have that kind of power? Those are questions you might ask. And and really, I want to get down to these two. Is this for the apostles or is it for us? Here's the answer. Yes. Let me explain. It is for the apostles in that there are parts of this play that you and I will not run. There are routes, if you will, football fans, that you are not going to run, but the apostles will as the foundation builders of the faith, as the foundation builders for the church. So there's certain aspects of this that we won't do, that power that we don't have. Yet, there are ministry principles here for all of us because we live in a hostile world, do we not? A world that is growing increasingly hostile to the gospel, to the righteousness of God, to the word of God. And yet we, maybe not capital A, formal apostles, we are lowercase a apostles, that is messengers that go out ambassadors for the king, that share the message with others. So we need this comfort too. We need these instructions We need to learn from these ministry principles and apply them in our life. So this is for us, too. And as I go through and teach, I'll try to explain and differentiate that which was what I believe for the formal apostles and that which is for us. You need to listen into this huddle, not like a a water boy or a, a water girl that listens to the huddle and gets excited with the team and then walks away and sits on the bench. No, no, no. You need to engage in the play, participate here. And I'll explain that as we move forward. Huddle up. Listen to this instruction. Remember Christ's motivation and then go out and execute as it pertains to your life and your ministry. So point number one, I want you to see the big picture here in your outline. If you have the outline there, the point number one is the plan for ministry. The plan for ministry. It's important for us to see what's going on here in this text. Now you need to know Up until this point, Jesus has been shouldering all the ministry. We saw that back in chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus went out throughout all the cities and villages. He was teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. He has been doing all the work, hasn't he? He has crowds following him. And among these crowds, there are 12 men who are called his disciples, 12 men. And so he calls them to himself. And and in this next phase, Jesus goes from doing all the work to giving his disciples work to do, to sending them out. Uh, A major transition takes place for these men. You might have seen it as we read through. If you look at the beginning of verse 1, they're called the 12 disciples. And then look at the beginning of verse 2. They are called the 12 apostles. So they goes from disciples to apostles. From being a learner to being a messenger. From follower to delegate. From called, called them to him, to sent. In verse 5, Jesus, these 12, Jesus sent out. That's interesting. What's Jesus doing here? Well, we get kind of a clue into Jesus's training program. There are some good training principles here, aren't there? Jesus's training program 
these men are going from following him, that is observing, watching his life and ministry, to be, being learners, they're hearing his instruction, so they're listening to his teaching, then to application. They go out and, and practice. They go out and do. So here's a simple training program that fits in almost every context. Observation, instruction, application. Write that down. Observation, instruction, application. We see Jesus has been modeling this in the first 10 chapters of Scripture. And so he, says, he calls them to follow him. They say, he says, observe my life, watch me live, and listen to my teaching. He gave them a full sermon, Sermon on the Mount. And now, application. His work is going to become their work. You need to start going out and doing as I do. Imitate me. Replicate what I've modeled This is a good training model for the church, for you as a Christian. Where are you at in your training? Let me ask you, uh, young young women, do you want to be a godly wife and mother? You want to grow to be a godly wife and mother? Then, Then why don't you observe, watch an older godly wife and mother? Observe their life. Observe what they do. Spend time with them. Get to know them. And then listen to their instruction. Okay? Ask good questions about godly wifing or godly mothering. And hopefully their answers, if they are godly, will be aligned with Scripture. They'll give you scriptural biblical principles. And you'll, you'll learn. And then godly mothers would go out and apply. Practice what you've learned. That's part of discipleship. Observation, instruction, and application. Same applies for men. Same applies for men who desire to grow in godliness. Make sure that you're getting yourself around some older godly men who you can watch and observe their life and their ministry. You could ask good questions and and the answers you'll get will be the truths of Scripture. And then you replicate. You go out and apply what you've learned. This is a good training model, observation, instruction, and application. But this thing is bigger than that, okay? There's just a simple principle there, but... There is a big movement happening in the book of Matthew at this point, and I want you to see that. God's plan, God's big plan is moving forward. This isn't simply a helpful training method, but Jesus is initiating the next stage in his big plan. This is an important prenatal development for the church. It's an important prenatal development for the church. What do I mean by that? Let me explain. Before the birth of the church, which happened at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Jesus is working on developing and training the nucleus, these 12 apostles that would become the forerunners and the foundation builders for his church, these men. Now, to help explain that, Further, it would be important for us at this point to define what is an apostle. You see that word there. Again, in verse 2, the names of the 12 apostles. They go from disciples to apostles. So what is an apostle? There are two senses of the word, but primarily what apostle means, and write this down, put simply it means messenger. 
An apostle is a messenger or a delegate, okay? Messenger is simpler. He's a messenger on behalf of another. Now, there are two senses of the word that you see in Scripture. There is, in the one sense, there are messengers without an extraordinary status. They're simply messengers. Examples of this would be Epaphroditus, who was a messenger for the church at Philippi. Titus was at one point a messenger for the church at Corinth. They don't have an official status. They are simply messengers. And the word is used in that sense in Scripture. But the second sense of the word is a formal sense. These are messengers with an extraordinary status, or this would be the office of apostle. So maybe to help you, um, just in your mind, distinguish it, there are apostles, lowercase a apostles, that would just be messengers that go out, delegates. Then there are capital A apostles that are formal apostles. They hold office. Now here's the difference. Apostles with the office of apostles, they are messengers appointed and sent directly by Jesus Christ. And they have a specific purpose. And we see their purpose fulfilled in Scripture. They're given unique authority and ability, an authority and ability that you and I do not have. As we see in our text, they're granted divine power to cast out demons, to heal disease, In the first century church, we see in the book of Acts, the apostles had miraculous abilities, the ability to speak in tongues, the ability to prophesy, the ability to heal. But their purpose, and this is important, the purpose of the office of apostle was to build the foundation for the church, to launch it. That was their purpose. So if we see that purpose, we see, man, this is... This is like their first huddle here. We're seeing this plan start, go into motion. The apostles are being trained here for the future foundation building of the church. It's really cool and exciting. By the way, these men would lay a firm foundation. These apostles would. They would spread the gospel to the east and to the west. They would author scripture Everything that God's people would need pertaining to life and godliness, 2 Peter 1. They would plant churches. They would appoint elders in every church, appointing them or commending them to the Lord. And we even see them later in the book of Acts start to defer to the elders of the church. They built a foundation. They were the forerunners, the men that Christ would send out and that would change the world. So we're seeing kind of the prenatal stage before the birth of the church, the development of these men in this passage. These apostles are the apostles in the former sense. That is, those are directly appointed, empowered, and sent by Jesus Christ. If there are apostles today, it is only those in the informal sense. That is, people like you and I who would be messengers that would go out and share the gospel. In that case, to not confuse anybody, I wouldn't prefer you call yourself an apostle. (laughs) Because in today's context, that would uh, be a different kind of uh, meaning there. There's some baggage with that word. There are a lot of men today who claim to be apostles, and they are claiming to be apostles in the formal sense. That is men who have divine ability. 
the ability to prophesy, the ability to cast out demons, the ability to speak in tongues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And most of the, the time, these men are eventually exposed to be in it for the money, aren't they? And they mislead people, and they don't lead or teach people from the scriptures. And so be careful of that. Be careful of a man who claims to be an apostle. But anyways, we're, we're witnessing here a, an historic huddle. This is historic. Okay, we're seeing God's plan unfold. Now, except for Judas Iscariot, we'll get to him, okay? Except, except for Judas, these men would live and eventually die for the faith. Every single one of them would be persecuted and killed except for John. John would live to an old age. They would, again, author scripture. They would do mighty works on behalf of God and build a strong foundation that you and I, brother and sister, we stand on today. These are men used mightily by the Lord. So if we see what's happening here, Jesus is, in a sense, passing the baton. Okay, Jesus ran the first lap. He, he showed them. He called them and he showed them what ministry is going to look like. And now he's, he's beginning to pass the baton off to them, and they're, they're going to have to run now. They're going to have to do as he did. Again, teach as he taught. And you might ask the question then, who gets the baton after the apostles? If we believe that it's a temporary office, who's leading the church now? Well, for that, we need to look at the rest of Scripture. In the book of Acts, like I said, the apostles seem to pass the baton to elders, you see Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14, they go around and they preach the gospel and then believers come up and, and there's a gathering. And they don't give that gathering to another apostle. Who do they give that gathering to? It says in Acts 14, 23, they appoint elders, pastors, shepherds to oversee that church. And then they move on and go to another city. They evangelize. They share the gospel. It's an incredible revival happens and these believers kind of gather together and they don't then appoint another apostle and hand it off to another apostle. You know what they do? They appoint elders, pastors in every church. And that's what they do. They go around in the east and the west. Churches are developed, and, and the baton, in a sense, is passed off to elders. Now it would be the elders' responsibility to lead the church, to carry the Great Commission out, to make disciples, and that's why our mission statement is to make and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ. We want to carry that responsibility seriously. And it's the elders' responsibility to do that, to take that baton from the apostles and lead the church in this endeavor. And so we take that responsibility very seriously as elders at Summit Bible Church. We know that we're primarily the laborers in the harvest. We're the shepherds, under-shepherds among the sheep. We preach the gospel so that people would come to know Christ and and then we teach all that he's commanded us so that people can grow in Christ. We've got to guard the deposit entrusted to us. We need to faithfully lead, preach, and teach, and minister as stewards of God's sheep. We need to lead by example. That's a responsibility. It's a weighty responsibility for the elder. In Hebrews 13, 17, it says, Obey and submit to your leaders. Why? For they keep watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account. Wow, that's, a, that's an immense responsibility that your elders at your church have taken upon themselves. And so we need to take that seriously. By the way, the end of that verse is let them do this with joy. 
<laughs> can you help us by making the job joyful? Um, it's an incredible responsibility. In 1 Peter chapter 5, it says for the elders to shepherd the church, to shepherd the church until that day when the chief shepherd appears and they'll get their reward. So we as elders, pastors, shepherd the church. It's a responsibility. It's also a stewardship because there's a shepherd greater than us that we have to give an account to. And the chief shepherds, he's coming back for his people. And at that point, when, you know, when the kingdom comes, we're going to give it back to the Lord Jesus. And hopefully we do that well. We've been faithful in our stewardship. So we, again, we have this primary labor here. We see the apostles get the baton. We know that in the future, the elders will get the baton, and that's primarily our responsibility. But get this, here's where you come in. There is another baton passed in Scripture. What's the baton that we're passing? We're passing the message of the gospel, the ministry of the word. Okay, so it goes from apostles to elders, and then from elders to who? In Ephesians 4.12, it says this. Christ gave the church apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists to do what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. To equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So part of our job as elders, as leaders, is to train you to labor in the harvest. To train you up and send you out as delegates, messengers for the king. Each of you, as I said a couple weeks ago, each of you has a little crop to attend to, right? If you think about the harvest and laboring amongst the harvest, you've got a little crop. You've got a little crop in your homes. You've got a little crop that you can evangelize in your workplace, you have little crops in your neighborhoods, people that you can influence and share the message of the gospel with. Do you not? The scriptures say, Ephesians 4.12, is that our responsibility as elders is not only to teach and lead you as the sheep, and it's a weighty responsibility that we take, but it's also to train you up to work, for you to go out and make and multiply disciples of Jesus Christ. For you to observe, to listen to instruction, to be sent out, to go out and apply what you've learned here. There is the king's plan. And we're seeing the impetus here. The apostles are being gathered to be sent out. The first baton goes to them. They will launch the church, build its foundation. Then they're going to pass the gospel baton to pastors who continue to lead the church in the Great Commission. And then finally, pastors are responsible to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So the sheep in each generation must be trained and sent out to make disciples and multiply and replicate. You see the transition happen here? I mean, we can't just watch the first baton hand off and go, okay, that's great, and move on with our lives. We're a part of this. We're a part of this. So I want to ask you, where are you at in this big plan? This is God's plan for the expansion of his church in the church age. Disciples making disciples. Where are you at in the plan? Ask yourself these questions. Am I following? Am I even in this? Am I wholehearted surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord? Is he my master? Is my whole life for him? 
That's the first question you need to ask. Am I following Jesus? Do I know him as Savior and Lord? The next question you need to ask yourself is, do I need training? Do I need development? Am I I taking opportunities to observe the lives of godly men and women, to learn from God's word, and then to apply and practice what I learn as I go out from here? If you're an elder in this room, we have a few in the room, um, ask yourself this question. Am I leading the sheep in the word so that they can be mature and equipped for every good work? Have I taken the baton from the apostles, taken responsibility for that ministry? And finally, a question for all of us to ask is, am I going out as a faithful messenger of Jesus Christ to the workplace, to the home, to the neighborhood, to the community? Where are you at in the plan? Where are you at in this big plan? So we see not only the, a little window into the start of the plan for the church, but we also see the power for ministry in this passage. So that's point number two, the power for the ministry. And I have three subpoints under this major point. And the first is the stimulus for power. The stimulus for power. It's not up on the screen, but if, you can, if you're taking notes. The stimulus for power. We need to not forget, listen, what prompted this ministry huddle. The and, at the beginning of verse 10, you see an and there. That connects us back to the previous events, what just happened. And do you remember what just happened? Jesus is looking out over this crowd of lost sheep. And what does he have for them? Compassion. He had compassion for them. We see that in verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Remember that the compassion of Jesus Christ is not just a distant sympathy. Like, oh, that's too bad. The compassion of Jesus was a gut-wrenching sympathy. It turned his stomach. It resulted in a, an emotional response. He He doesn't just have compassion for them for a distance, but his compassion moves him to help these people. It's a display, a manifestation of God's desire to forgive sinners, not to avoid them. God doesn't look down at us as sinners, and he could justifiably so go, oh, disgusting. I want nothing to do with these people. They've rejected me. They've rebelled against me. They've fallen short of my glory. I'm done with them. God doesn't do that, does he? In his compassion, with the abundance of mercy and grace, he doesn't repel away. He comes down as a man and lives among these sinners, these helpless, lost sheep. And he does so perfectly without sin. And listen, this is the gospel. Jesus would eventually then go to the cross and die as a substitute for the sinner. To take the punishment, the penalty upon himself, and raise from the dead, giving us victory over sin and death if we would believe in him and entrust ourselves to him wholeheartedly. That's what God's compassion does. And this is, we see a glimpse of it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He has compassion for the crowds. He doesn't avoid them. He goes to touch them, to heal them, to speak to them, to preach the gospel to them. So the stimulus 
that got Jesus to get his disciples together to go out is compassion. Mercy drove him to be a minister. And look at what Jesus grants them power to do in verse 1. He doesn't give them extraordinary uh, speech, an eloquence of speech. He doesn't make them incredible orators. He gives them power to do what? To heal. To cast out demons. He makes them ministers of mercy. Extended arms that could take his mercy for people out to the people. They're ministers of mercy. Mercy is a great stimulus for Christ-like ministry. It should motivate all of us. Remember the Apostle Paul last week, we looked at 2 Corinthians 4. Paul says, I have this ministry by the mercy of God. Because of compassion, I have this ministry out to people. That's important for us to remember. Your ministry is the same, by the way. You have your ministry, your life, your salvation by the mercy of God. Don't forget that. Don't go into thinking that you earned it or you deserve it. It was by God's mercy, remember? You were once dead and he made you alive. You were saved according to his mercy, Titus 3, 5. According to his great mercy, you were born again, 1 Peter 1, 3. And God, being rich in mercy, made you alive in Christ, Ephesians 2. You're here today because of the mercy of God. Don't forget that as you minister to other people. It's really important, especially for these apostles. They're going, to be, they're going to receive great power, divine power. It's important for that power to not get to their heads, to think that they're better than these people. They need to remember, hey, mercy is what got you here, and mercy is what you're going to need to minister to these people. God doesn't want your duty-driven, self-righteous, self-promoting ministry. He wants a mercy-motivated ministry in your life. So mercy stimulates Christ's ministry. And secondly, the source of power. I want you to see the source of power. Who gave them power? Jesus. He gave them power. Chapter chapter 10, verse 1. He called to him his 12 disciples and he gave them authority. Power. John Calvin, theologian, writes this. These men had neither ability nor eloquence. While the excellence and novelty of their office required more than human endowments, it was therefore necessary that they should derive their power from another source. In other words, these guys didn't have it in them. They were weak vessels. They had no kind of power within themselves, much less a power to heal disease and sickness. So all the power in these guys' ministry came from Jesus. Jesus, the divine source of power. It's important for the messenger of God, even for you as a minister, to know that all the power that you have for ministry is not within you. You're not going to find it in another person. It only comes from Jesus. Paul writes this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. I think I have the verse up on the screen. He said, And I, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. 
And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, not in the wisdom of the apostles, but in the power of God. Paul knew his source of power wasn't because he was a good speaker. It's because he carried the message of the gospel. He had the power of God. It was, it was God. God's message, God's power for God's glory. Not our own. The power for faith does not rest in men, but it rests in God. The power for your own personal ministry, the power in your gospel message, doesn't depend on you. It depends on the Lord. And that should do two things for you, messenger. Two things. First, it should give you courage. It should embolden you to preach the gospel, to be unashamed. Because it doesn't depend on you, the effect. You just be faithful to share it. Open your word and speak the news. And, and like Eddie said, we believe, therefore we speak. We talk to people about it. We share the good news of the gospel. Do you feel weak? Do you feel inadequate? Do you have a stammering tongue like Moses did? Great. You're a prime vessel to be used by God and to display his power, not yours. So just be faithful. Depend on his power and, and be courageous to step out and speak, but also to not be pridefully courageous. Like I said, knowing that the power comes from God does two things. It, one, gives us courage, but two, it keeps us dependent. It keeps us dependent and humble. Don't be proud for a second to think that you've figured it out. You have the secret formula to get your neighbor saved or your family member saved. No, you need God. You need God every second of your day. You need God every minute, every hour. And you need God to work through the words that you speak or else they will fall void. We need his power daily in ministry, in life, in our marriages, in our parenting. We are dependent on the power of God. Paul tells the Corinthians that God gave him a thorn in the flesh, and he asked God three times to remove it. Please, Lord, remove this thorn of the flesh. Take it away. And God's response is this. My grace is sufficient for you. Then he says this. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. That's important for us to remember, isn't it, in life and ministry? That is, through our weakness, God's power is put on display. It's through the trouble and the trials of our life that our faith is formed and forged. And we trust God because it's his power, not ours. The power for ministry, the source of power is in God, in Christ. Finally, the scope of power. The scope of power. The stimulus of power is compassion. The source of power is in Jesus. The scope of power was comprehensive. He gave them power to heal every disease and to heal every affliction, everything. It's amazing. These apostles would even one day raise the dead by the power of God. That's power. That's a lot of it. And we got to ask the question, why? Why did these men get that kind of power? Well, again, I think John Calvin gives us a helpful answer. He says this, By enabling them to perform miracles, Christ invests them with the badges of heavenly power in order to secure the confidence of the people. And hence, he says, we may infer what is the proper use of miracles. 
as Christ gives them at the same time in an immediate connection the appointment to be preachers of the gospel and ministers of miracles. Those are given at the same time. Calvin's conclusion is this. It's plain that the miracles are nothing else than seals of his doctrine. In other words, let me simplify Calvin's quote. Jesus gave them signs and powers to validate their message, to confirm that their message, their gospel message, was of God. They were, in a sense, authenticating stamps for their proclamation. That's why they were given the comprehensive power of Christ. It helped them to build that foundation for the church, to launch it. Now today, we don't have need for that kind of authenticating power to join our message because we have the written and recorded word of God here. The apostles penned scripture. And so our authenticating stamp on our message is not a miracle. It's not a display show. It's in accordance with God's word. May our words be the apostles' words, God's words, and nothing else. Nothing more, nothing less. So when you hear a sermon from a preacher, you don't wait and see, does this man have the power of God? Can I see him cast out a demon? I want to see him cast out a disease or heal somebody. Open your Bible and make sure that what he says is what God says. That's important. The power of a minister today is not in his signs. It's in his alliance with God and his word. And so this is the part of the play that you and I don't run. (laughs) This authenticating ministry, this foundation building that the apostles had, that we don't have, but we run off of their shoulders with the word of God that they penned and wrote. Stick with the word. Stick with the word to authenticate your message. Okay, so what can we learn? Let's just recap from the empowering of the apostles. First, the stimulus for power is compassion. The mercy of God is what should motivate us toward people. And the source of power is God. We're merely vessels in the Lord's hands. We're dependent on his strength, deferring to his glory. The scope of power granted the apostles was signs and wonders, and they were to authenticate the message. Today, the authenticity of our message is in alignment with God's word. So that's what we preach expositionally. Finally, let's look at the people for the ministry. This is the final point here. Let's look at these names, shall we? It's a motley crew. Twelve men are listed. They're divided into three subgroups, groups of four. Across the gospel, the order of some individuals is slightly rearranged, but the grouping stays the same. Peter is always listed first. He is the clear leader of the group. What do we make of this list? I already read through the names. First thing is that we see that they are united by Christ despite their differences. Despite their differences. Matthew does not hide their baggage. Did you notice that? Even of himself. Matthew the what? Tax collector. Well, that's not a great position, especially in the first century. Simon the what? Zealot. Simon was a radical Simon was a revolutionary. 
You have Judas who did what? Betrayed him. Matthew's pretty clear about that up front, even though it hasn't happened yet. Almost as if Matthew's trying to say, look at who Jesus brought together. Look at this group. (laughs) With more background information, you would never put these men together. Don't bring up politics because you have an imperialist in the tax collector and a nationalist in the zealot. Two opposing groups. One supports Rome, is an assistant of the Roman Empire. The other is a clear adversary to the Roman Empire. How about James, the thundering son of Zebedee? And then you have James, the quiet son of Alphaeus, almost not mentioned elsewhere. You have Peter and Thomas. Think about these guys. One, overly confident, Peter. Thomas, almost always doubting. Bartholomew, he's also known as Nathaniel in other Gospels, and then, and then Judas Iscariot, one in whom Jesus looks at Bartholomew, Nathaniel, he says, in whom no deceit exists. And then you've got Judas, who would deceive them all eventually and betray the Lord. Different guys put together in this group. Different kind of economic, cultural backgrounds, different personalities. Some are blue-collar, most are blue-collar, some are white-collar. Some are fishermen, farmers potentially, an activist. But these men with all these differences are united by one man. And who's that one man? The king. And they're united under one cause. And what is his cause? His kingdom. The gospel going out and the kingdom advancing. Listen, there can be differences in personality cultural backgrounds, even maybe some political opinions, economic classes. There can be difference in a group of believers, but we, there's one man who brings us all together, isn't there? Jesus Christ is the reason you're in this room. And you look around and there's different colors and economic statuses and maybe even language barriers at times. But Jesus Christ brings us together. And what is our cause? The same. His kingdom to share the gospel, to proclaim Christ, to make disciples and followers of him. And so we see these men are united by Christ despite their differences. Second, they're useful to Christ despite their weaknesses. Matthew has a troubled past. Peter has a troubled future. If you read the very beginning of verse 2, you're reminded that Peter's name was once Simon. You remember that? Simon, who is called Peter, do you remember how that transition takes place? He was called Simon up until the point where he declared that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's at this, that point that Jesus says, you will be called Peter, the rock, upon whom I will build my church. That's a high point in Peter's life. That's an exciting moment for a disciple of Jesus Christ. But do you remember what happens exactly directly right after Peter tries to dissuade Jesus from going to the cross. And at that point, what does Jesus call him? He says, get behind me, Satan. Peter put his foot in his mouth way too many times. Peter was a weak man. A strong leader that would be used by God, but very weak. And and had his sinful flaws, he wore them on his sleeve. But God used him anyway, didn't he? 
God would use Peter to eventually preach the sermon at Pentecost to cause thousands of believers to become saved, and he would be the rock upon which the church is built. And so God uses weak people, not so that their name would be great, but that he would be great, so that his power is proclaimed and he is glorified. Isn't that an encouragement for you? Do you feel weak today? Do you feel inadequate, like you're not enough in whatever you're doing? Well, good. You're, you're a prime vessel for the work of God. You're a prime vessel for his power to work through you and to make an impact, not for your name, but for his name and his glory. So they're useful to Christ despite their weaknesses. Finally, they are useful to Christ despite rejection. What do we make of that last name? Judas Iscariot. The one, Matthew says, who would betray him. He, at one point, was called an apostle. Twelve apostles, twelve names listed, and Judas is one of them. Judas is sent out in this practice stage to proclaim the gospel. Judas likely had the power of Christ to cast out demons and to perform healings. What do we make of that? What do we learn from that? Knowing that Judas was also the son of perdition, that he would betray Christ, hang himself, and is in hell. Not saved. Not regenerate. What do we make of Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, being in this list? Maybe there's a lesson here for how we should view, just a suggestion, how we should view the impactful ministry of a church leader who eventually walks away from the faith, rejects Christ, becomes apostate. There's examples of those today, right? Men who appear faithful, they have an impactful ministry, they preach the gospel, very effective, and then we learn later in life they walk away. They reject Christ. And many people who got caught up in that ministry wonder, was it ever real? Was it ever real what they did? If I got saved under a leader that walked away from the Lord, did I really get saved? They wonder about the legitimacy of a ministry under the impactful leader who eventually walked away from the faith. Are you following me? There's examples of that today. Some might ask, was Judas's ministry ever legitimate, knowing that he didn't finish the race? Here is what I would submit to you. I think it was. I think it was. Because again, the power is not in the vessel, is it? doesn't depend on the vessel. God who works through the vessel. He can work through weak vessels. He can work through unregenerate men to show his glory. What did he do with Pharaoh? He hardened his heart. And God tells you why in the book of Exodus. He says, I raised this man up to show my glory. That was the purpose of Pharaoh's life, to display the glory and power of God. And so... Couldn't Judas do the same? God, Jesus gets the glory through whatever ministry Judas did in his time following Christ. And God would get the glory through this man's betrayal that would lead to his crucifixion. And God's plan is fulfilled. The Christ suffers for sinners. God is glorified. Amen?
Jesus is sovereign over Satan. He's sovereign over demons. He's sovereign over defiled vessels to accomplish his purposes. He can even use an unregenerate minister to accomplish his plan, to preach his gospel, and eventually bring that man to nothing because it doesn't depend on him. And it doesn't mean that the good fruit from that ministry is fraudulent. The Holy Spirit will guide those people to the truth. And he eventually does. So you shouldn't put too much stock in men. They're vessels for the power of God. Okay, so huddle up with the king. Huddle up with the king and his apostles. Consider your participation. Where are you at with his plan? Are you in training? Are you in development? Are you going, being sent out? Do you need strength today? Do you need power? Do you need encouragement? Are you stuck and caught up thinking, I, I love Jesus, I want to participate in this, but I'm, I'm too different, I'm too weak? Well, good, this huddle is for you. You need these words, this encouragement from Christ to remember who he is and to go out and be faithful in his ministry. Let me close in prayer. I want to read an adaptation from The Valley of Vision a prayer in the Valley of Vision. I think it's fitting in light of our message today. Heavenly Father, we are poor and feeble creatures without faith. We are like an eagle with clipped wings. Help us to rest in your power and faithfulness and to know that there are two things worth living for in this life to further your cause in the world, and to do good to the souls and bodies of men. This is our ministry. This is our life, our prayer, and our end. Grant us grace that we shall not fail. Amen.